And I've always been a risk taker. Like, you know, it's my advice for anyone that ever asks for mentorship. I'm like, just go fly, leap off the cliff. Like, what have you got to lose? From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, Sarah Fryer knows her way around Silicon Valley. Even though her life started in Northern Ireland, she found herself at Stanford Business School in the 90s and never left the area. She's worked with the likes of Salesforce's Mark Benioff, whom she considers a mentor, and was Jack Dorsey's right hand and CFO at Square. But recently, she says she made her hardest career decision to date, leaving her role at Square, which she called the best CFO job in the world, to become CEO of Nextdoor, a social network connecting people to their neighbors. On this episode, Sarah talks about taking risks, breaking down the roadblocks we sometimes create for ourselves, and knowing when to be patient and impatient in your career. That's such an important one. Plus, what she says the future of social media and privacy looks like. Here's Sarah Fryer. Sarah Fryer, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. The last time we saw each other was a couple years back. You were the CFO of Square at the time. That's right. Now, congratulations. You're the CEO next door. I know. Heading places, right? Is that how it feels? It feels great. I think I've hit the rocket ship. I think the most exciting thing going on right now on Consumer Internet, and I'm going to tell you all about it. Um, but it really has felt like a very easy transition. Oh, interesting. Is that is it because culturally the companies are similar, or or what 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 makes the ease of it? So I think it's a couple of things. I think one, I've been a member of Nextdoor. I think I joined uh, our, my local one in 2014, so four plus years. So it helps when you've experienced what you're building. Yes. But beyond that, it really speaks to me in terms of global applicability. I'm all about community. You're going to hear a little bit more about that soon. Um, and so in my soul, it feels like something I want to do in the world. Um, beyond that, the team, as you mentioned, because you're hitting people who are there for all the right reasons, right? They're very mission-driven, very passionate about what they do. So it's very similar to Square in that regard. Um, but they're super smart, and they're moving fast, and there's no time to kind of pause. You just need to get right into that boat and row with them. So I'm sure listeners can hear in your voice, you're not from here. You are fr- You grew up in Northern Ireland. That's right. Went yeah. to school at Oxford. And one thing I was surprised by, I didn't realize this about your background, you wanted to study metallurgy. Yes, I did. So what was, first of all, I, I had to Google what exactly metallurgy was. So what was the draw that time? Sure, sure. So I think you need to go back a little bit more. So I've always, I am super inquisitive by nature. I get that from my dad. And I was always the kid that was taking things to pieces. So there was nothing in our house that wasn't at the radio, some point, the clock, everything totally taken apart, deconstructed. And then my mom would come home and I'd have put it back together, except there'd be like a piece. And I was like, I don't know where that went, but it still <laughs> appears to work. Um, so always had that engineering gene. But you know, I grew up in a really small community, a farming community. And frankly, if you were good at math and science, you either became a doctor. My brother's a doctor, or you became like a, an accountant or something. And there was kind of just two paths. And I wanted to do this strange engineering path. So 
when I applied to Oxford, which was also, frankly, a completely out of the blue thing, right? No one from my family school. didn't know about it. School no. didn't. It wasn't something that was talked about as it's when you were a kid. Never. My parents didn't go to university. So they didn't even know what that meant. Um, but I happened into wanting to go to Oxford. And then you had to, British education is a little different, right? You have to actually choose. So I went through, I knew I wanted to do this thing called engineering. And then I wasn't really sure what type. Um, I loved chemistry. It's kind of, I am a total nerd ball. Discovered this course actually called Metallurgy, Economics, and Management. Mm. And so what I loved about MEM was that there was that spread of disciplines, which is more what in the U.S. you expect from a liberal, liberal arts education that you can do more very atypical in the UK at that time. And so that's why I happened into, I could have done EEM, Engineering, Economics, Management, or MEM. And the M part, I love the tutor. Like when I went to interview, I just thought he was great. And I was like, this is my place. See, that makes a difference. Your teachers really, I think especially for women, when you look at math and science, and there's some research around this too, if you have a great teacher, you can be inspired to do more. A bad teacher will put you on the opposite track. What did you want to do with that degree? Did you have an idea? Sure. So interestingly, before, so the whole Oxford thing came along and then I realized I couldn't afford to go. I was all gung home, going to go do this. Then my parents kind of looked at me and said, well, actually, you need to go to Belfast. Like you need to go to Queens because we can't afford to do that, which I totally get. Um, And so sitting in my career room at school, which was like a, you know, a bread box, I discovered this (laughs) magazine that had a scholarship program from Arthur Anderson, which was an accounting firm. And their scholarship was come work for us for a year before you go to university, and then we'll give you a scholarship through university. And I was like, right, I'm going to do that. And they also had this travel grant they gave you, and I had these itchy feet. Right? I'm very Irish, right? We wanderlust. And so I was like, right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to apply. Not really thinking I'd ever actually get it, but I was like, it's my one chance to make it out <laughs> a little. I make it sound like Northern Ireland wasn't a great place to be, but it was a tough environment, right? The troubles were happening. And so I got that scholarship. And so I got a year before I did the metallurgy piece to actually see what business was like. And so I guess while I joined Oxford, still thinking, okay, I'm going to be this engineer. This is my calling. And we can talk about, I actually did an internship in Ghana working for a gold mine, working for Ashanti Goldfields, because I was like, okay, so what metallurgists do. Um, I'd kind of now found this side love of business. And kept thinking, okay, maybe the business track is the right track. And I wasn't sure, but that's what I was debating between. So you come back from this year-long internship. You yeah. go to Oxford. Yeah. You graduate. Was it immediate that you wanted to go to Stanford for business school? No, definitely not. So in the middle of that uh, that four-year degree, that master's program, I went off and did uh, an internship with Ashanti Goldfields in Ghana. And actually, I had a very nasty experience. Like, I really felt fish out of water. No women. None of the, you know, you can't be what you can't see. There there was no sight of any female. And they treated the girl different. You know, Mm. I was like, I am not a girl. Like, I'm a woman. Yes. But they just treated me different, right? I If someone needed to make tea, I was the person making tea. I had an internship like that. I had a job like that where I was the only female. It was in the finance field. And they wanted me to get toast for them every day. It was kind of like, are you kidding me? So demoralizing, right? So I kind of came back to that and was like, this is not for me. I need to find the other job. So how did you, by the way, end up uh, in a gold mine? Is it a gold mine? <laughs> it was a gold mine. In Ghana? In Ghana. Was the, did they recruit on campus? <laughs> no, no it, <laughs> it was like a friend of a friend. I was looking for an internship. My choices were, you know, go work for British Gas or British Coal or something in the U.K., 
And I had a friend of a friend who said, oh, I have this friend at Ashanti. You know, it could be a really interesting place for you to go. And I was like, awesome, Africa, I'm in. Sign yeah. me up. Where can I go? Right. I was, Whatever the job is is fine. I just yeah. want to get to Africa. Exactly. And I've always been a risk taker like that. And, you know, it's my advice for anyone that ever asks for mentorship. I'm like, just go fly, leap off the cliff. Like, what have you got to lose? So um, came back from that, got to the end, you know, and ended up saying, okay, I'm going to pivot. I don't see how this engineering thing can really work for me. And found McKinsey. Um Wonderful. Like U.S. first chance of kind of seeing a U.S. firm in action. Right. Because you'd already been at Arthur Anderson, which yeah. is side of, a similar concept, but not same. I guess that's true. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of it that way because Arthur Anderson felt very British, mm-hmm. but McKinsey felt very American. And because of that, um, in fact, I went to work in South Africa for McKinsey because of my metallurgy background, because their clients were either mining clients or finance clients. Um, and they had no one at a junior level that knew what a mining client did or was. Which is actually, so I love that you say this, because I always say find a side door. And for me, part yeah. of how I got into journalism is because of my background in finance. So it sounds like it really yeah. gave you a leg up that you had this weird experience that most exactly. other people didn't have. <laughs> yeah. And so it gets you in the door. It's exactly right. You're memorable. So I ended up in South Africa but you asked about business school, and it was really the only path that McKinsey had at the time. If you were a BA, business analyst, the only way you became an associate is if you right. did this business school thing that no one, Europeans didn't do business school, didn't know what that was. But once I got the lay of the land, I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. I get to take two years off. You'll pay for it. And one of the options is California. Where do I sign? <laughs> so that's what took me to Stanford. And what were your thoughts when you got to Stanford? Were you still thinking, because they're paying for it, McKinsey's paying for it, but don't you have to like go back to McKinsey in order for that check (laughs) to clear, basically? Totally. So I think what I was thinking was, first, the U.S. was going to be ephemeral. I would be there for two years, and then I would go home, quote unquote home, probably to London, not Northern Ireland, but I would go home to London. And, you know, I loved my American peeps that I met, but, you know, I'm like, I miss sarcasm. The men all wear white socks. I need to make it back to civilization. They wear a lot of fleece here. I don't wear fleece. And here I am still on the West Coast. Patagucci. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yes, I mean, the first year business goal was really, I mean, if you think about it, I was there 98 through 2000. And so the bubble, the tech yeah. bubble was on fire and people were leaving to start companies. And I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I wasn't really thinking about McKinsey per se. Um, Towards the end, I was suddenly thinking a lot about it and realizing I didn't love being a consultant. I'm a doer. Like Mm -hmm. to this day, like I hated creating strategy and creating tactics and then handing your beautiful baby over and someone else executes on the whole thing. It drove me crazy. And then they might not even execute it on the way you envision. And then it's kind of like, why did we give them this advice in the first place? (laughs) A lot of that. A lot of beautiful materials on a shelf. And so I wanted to go do. But then the, the rub was... I owed McKinsey a lot of money and I didn't have a visa, right? I was an immigrant. Um, and so tech startup land, while very attractive, was not a place that paid cash. They paid this thing called equity that wasn't liquid and they didn't know how to do visas that well. And mm. so that drove me to Goldman, um, which I thought would be this small stepping stone to do get those two major things kind of quote unquote fixed and then ended up staying there for 11 years. So what was the turning point? Obviously, you you spent a lot of time inside of Goldman. I would imagine that it was a good experience for you overall. Oh, yeah. Amazing experience. So what was the turning point that said, I, I, I'm ready, it's go time, and I'm going to the startup world? 
so I think a lot of it was when the crisis happened. Um, the 08, financial crisis. The financial crisis, 08, 09. Um, I felt I had lost my way of what was important in life. So, you know, that little community I grew up on is still where my parents live. My parents were community builders. And I couldn't really construct for them what the point was of what I did. And that was the point where I felt I really unhooked because I'm a believer by nature, right? When I believe, you get 150% of me all the time. And I just lost that sense of belief. So, you know, I started to talk to some mentors. I had one particular mentor, um, actually the CEO of a really big company in Silicon Valley, who said, you need to be an operator, right? I see this over and over again. You have this operator gene. Come work and, you know, come work with me. And actually, I didn't go work with him, but I worked with my other mentor, Benioff. Um, but they managed to kind of hook Mark me Benioff, out. the Mark CEO Benioff, and founder of Salesforce. Who's amazing. And Mark and, and the best sales guy ever. So he sold me on, hey, come work with me. You know, you'll learn so much about how to operate and run a company, like far more than you will at a tiny startup. Because I was looking at a lot mm. of tiny startups. And, you know, for a year and a half, he was completely right. Uh, you know, you see... When you're at a company like Salesforce that was at that scale, it was about 5,000 people growing like a weed, you got to see you know, 100 things in a week where maybe in a startup you would see two things because you're not at that scale and you're doing them all versus at a Salesforce, right? You have teams that are experts in everything you touch, right? If you're doing an acquisition or if you're renting a building or if you're thinking about going into a new country, right? You are part of the team, but there's a team versus yes. in a startup, there's you. And so that was a wonderful transition. It was a hard one. I had to take a swing for the fences, but I'm glad I did it. So when you say that, was it sort of, did it appear like a step down? Did you have to take a reduction in salary in order to do it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And your ego can get, I mean, definitely when you think about people listening, right, your ego can really get there. Like I will admit, like there was a little bit of a gulp on comp. I was very lucky. I was in a place where my, you know, we're a, both my husband and I work, so at least we have that balance. Although he did the startup first, so I supported him. So it was like my turn. You stayed at Goldman <laughs> while he did the startup. Exactly. Although, to be fair, it was a hedge fund startup. I don't want to make it sound like – but it was like they didn't have anything in the beginning. Um, but, you know, for, for me, the, the, the flip, like the, the, the willingness to go take that leap was subsuming ego. Frankly, even like my title, I was like, what will people at Goldman think? You know, mm. I'm not – don't have a fancy title What anymore. was your title at Goldman and what was your first title at Salesforce? So at, at Goldman, I was the business unit leader for the tech group. So I had this fancy title, right? You know, made it sound a lot more than it was. In the end, I just worked with amazing people who did great things. And I got to like kind of herd the sheep together, herd the, the cats together to get like the great reports out. But everyone was like pulling their weight. And then when I went to Salesforce, originally it was to be head of FP&A. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't even know what FP&A <laughs> nice is. Nice acronym. I mean, seriously, financial planning and analysis, that sounds awful. Um, And so actually the first thing I did, which in some ways was more brilliant in hindsight, is I changed the name to SVP of Finance and Strategy, which sounded much better. But what it did was we also changed the game of who we recruited. So turns out there's a lot of bankers and private equity people and venture capitalists and even startup folks who want to go do that in bigger companies, but are put off by names like FP&A. Not that there's anything wrong with FP&A, just to be clear. It's just we broadened the aperture of, of what people thought the job would be. And then we made it that job for them, ultimately. And you know that was my first experience of creating something within a company where I got to put my own stamp on it mm-hmm. completely. 
But it all came from ego. And so you really have to learn to just, who cares? Like, as long as you love what you're doing and you're having an impact, who cares what your title is or whatever? Because in the end, in what I've found in any company, particularly a startup, is there's always more work than people and work will come to you if you're great. And what was the turning point then to go from this really, what sounds like was an actually like legitimately great experience with Mark Benioff inside of Salesforce, where you were given terrain to grow and to have power, but it was a relatively established company Yeah, to go to something that's really, really young and new. Yeah, it it was a hard choice because I also, like you should know about me, when I hire, I always say I hire smarts first, but loyalty second, Mm. and then experience a distant third. And that loyalty piece is really important. And Mark had taken a chance on me, and I felt deeply loyal to him. But... Square was one of those things where my husband, when the call came in, he's like, if you don't call them back, I'll call them back for you. (laughs) Because you had this just unique moment in time. I know we're going to talk about next door, but it's I I feel the same kind of excitement of a unique moment in time. It was a really good scale. So about a 200 person company. It's actually next door is about the same size, a little bit bigger right now. Um, And it just felt that, you know, you had this lift to electronic payments going on in the world, more use of mobile I love the design, the feel. Frankly, I talked to the first customer and I was theirs because the customer was so glowing about how not that, you know, we had figured out how to accept credit cards for him, but how we had changed his life, Mm. which talk about going back to community and wanting to make a difference in the world. Like that is a big moment when you hear that from a customer. And so, you know, that and then just finally the people. It's always for me, people first, right? If you work with great people, just great things happen. And how significant was it to get the C-suite title? Because making that transition from senior vice president in the ranks of a large company where those titles are very, very difficult to come by versus going somewhere that's younger sometimes means you get that title boost, even though you're also taking on potentially some really big challenges. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I thought it was that important. I wanted to be able to craft my own path. And so... That does come with having a seat at the table. But I've definitely learned, and I think now I'm completely bought into the whole, like, titles don't matter. Like, don't get fixated on the title. You'll hear more from Sarah Fryer after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Now I'm completely bought into the whole, like, titles don't matter. Like, don't get fixated on the title. It's easier to say that as the CEO, right? I I, I know. (laughs) And I I completely get that it can sound, you know, (laughs) self-serving. But I I really feel like instead you should, like, when I interview someone now, certainly, I don't actually care about their title. I'm drilling into, like, what was the work you did? What was the impact you had? You know, and kind of really trying to test like good people yes. like, at their soul. And so it's actually a red flag for me if one of the first per- things someone asks is, what's my title going to be? Or I need a bigger title. I'm like, that's awesome. But you're not going to fit working in this place mm-hmm. with me because in the end, I think if you orient around the work, that is the much more important thing. So like. I really would love to just do away with titles. Like, <laughs> I I don't put a title on. Like, if you get an email from me, it doesn't say CEO. Like, I think you get this stuff all in your head, and it just gets you off course from doing great things for your customers 
doing something that changes the world and working with great people along the way. Well, to your point about conversations during interviews, I really I'm a really strong believer aligned with where you are on this idea about it's about the work that you've done. And I think there are a lot of people and I'm saying this purely from experience. I don't know that this is uh, entirely uh, based on any um, statistics or studies or research, but I will frequently find in talking to women versus men that um, I, I find that women are often playing well above the title if you really get into it and you talk to them about their experience. And something that I'm always looking for is that legitimate experience because there are a lot of jobs out there, and I think people are quietly doing them every day where you're playing so far above your title. You might even be doing the job of your boss, or more often than not, you are doing the job of your boss, but no one would know because you're sort of stuck at this lower level. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, I mean, that's, I guess, the downside of saying titles don't matter is you end up holding people back. But I don't know. That's why you just create like egalitarian companies that are based around show me the money, like show me the results. Yes. Like I'm meritocracy. Gonna, yeah. I'll set you a goal and show me that you're just knocking that ball out of the park and let's not get fixated on how you do it, when you do it. You know, again, I think that's also a big unlock for people is, um, you know, thinking about diverse workplaces, right? I'm a working mom. So if you tell me I have to be in the office within certain pillars of time, Sometimes that doesn't work for my lifestyle. Like particularly yeah. when my kids were younger, I needed to be home during the winter sing or I needed to take time off for like a day off they had. But I always got the work done. Right. And I think too much, you know, Wall Street in particular was a very FaceTime driven business. I think tech has somewhat broken away from that. But there's still a sense of, you know, the that you're going to be there late at night, you know, hands on keyboard coding. And it turns out like for a lot of people, it doesn't fit the lifestyle there. They're up at like four in the morning, hands on keyboard coding, and they're getting just as much done in the end. Right. Totally. Um, So, okay, you're at Square, you're CFO. How does Nextdoor come together? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a little bit finger pinching right now that I have a brand new job and I'm running hard. Um, It wasn't an easy inbound because I was not looking. I mean, I tell people over and over again, I had the best CFO job in the world and I really believe that. So whoever gets to take this seat, they are the luckiest person alive because it is the best CFO job in the world. But the person who made the call and knows me is in the recruiting kind of headhunting business, but knows me personally. And that was the only reason why I picked up. I picked up as a friend, not as a business acquaintance. And the sales pitch, which I think was a good one, was, look, this is a probably the most exciting thing going on in consumer internet today. Um They have had a slow burn, but an importantly slow burn because they're thinking really long-term greedy here. So it takes a while to bring members onto our platform, right? We verify you. We say that you live in this house, right? That's a lot of friction, as the Valley would call it, to onboarding. But we take that time because now you can trust that when you talk to someone in Nextdoor is really your neighbor. Um, So that was sales pitch one. And I'm like, okay, intriguing. And, you know, I talked to some other folks like Reid Hoffman, for example, who've built Big network effect platform. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Social, uh, I guess not really social media, but definitely a platform network effect business. There's a social media component yeah. to it. And and Reed's point was, look, look, these things take time to come together. And if there was something else out there, you would know about it right now. right? This is what makes Nextdoor so interesting. So that was kind of point one. 
big platform may be ready for a push. I think the second thing that then started to intrigue me, you know, I've been on my next door neighborhood for quite a long time, but was just how much commerce there is there wanting to happen. You need to do it in the right way. But the one thing I bring is, you know, endless focus on local businesses for the last seven years right. of my life. Um, I love these people. I've I talk to them all the time. I have a nonprofit called Ladies Who Launch, which is all about mainstream women. So being able to kind of unfold that in a way where there's huge utility for the member because you get your job done quickly, whatever it is, might be cutting down a tree, getting your lawn cut, getting childcare, um, but allowing local businesses to actually you know do well and thrive. So I think there's a massive opportunity there. Third thing was definitely mission driven. There's not that many mission driven companies out there in life. Like you might go and try to, you know, and you make up in your head they're mission driven, but they're actually not. So there's very few just doing good in the world. And then I met the team um, and I was sold. I was like, okay, hardest decision I've made to date career wise, but, you know, I'm in. Was there anyone telling you not to do it? Yeah, actually, interestingly, when I, you know, I'm a person of frameworks. So when I wrote the list and then you I made your pros and cons, totally have them written down in like a notebook, called my mentors. They were probably pretty evenly split. Like for some people, they're like, I think staying at Square, you can have more impact because you're completely reinventing the world of finance, right? An area that needs a lot of disruption. Other people were like, this is a no brainer. It's, you're ready to take the reins, go like run something. And I was talking to someone earlier about it that it'll kind of maybe make you laugh or smile. The tipping point came and I was, you know, hell on earth because I'd wake up one day and be like, I'm going to go do it. The next day I'd be like, no, I'm going to stay. <laughs> I had to, I can relate to that completely because I, in dis- various decisions about jobs, I do, I've done the same thing. Totally. And I've like, when I want to think, I hike. So I've like hiked the mountain that I live on, like put in more miles this year than you can imagine. My husband was like driving him nuts. So I'd be like, he's like, where are you at? I'm like, I'm going to do it. So... We literally sat down on a Friday night and we're watching the notorious RBG movie the, with yes. my kids. So I have a 13-year-old girl and an 11-year-old boy. And halfway through the movie, I just was like tingling. And I'm like almost tearful. I'm like, I have to do this, right? Can't be what you can't see. I say this all the time. More women need to lead, right? I stand in the front of so many audiences telling women to get on it and do it. I'm looking at my both my kids because while – I want to be this icon for my daughter so she knows she's just unfettered to do whatever she wants in life. I also want my son to be this ally for women and to say, hey, my mom did it, so any woman can do it. And I looked at my husband and I said, I'm going to do it. And he's like, thank God. It's totally the right decision. <laughs> so I'm like, Yay. couldn't you have said that that's before? A, no, but that's, that is, I love that that happened in that yeah. context Yeah, because it says he was letting you yeah, he didn't want to figure make it out. He didn't want to make the decision for you, but he's rallying behind you and a champion of you. That sounds awesome. It was great. So that was Friday night. I think I had called everyone on Saturday morning, and there we are. The rest is history. So I think the, the concept of next door is very interesting to me. And admittedly, I only recently joined, and it wasn't because we were having this <laughs> interview coming up. I joined because. I'm pregnant and my husband and I were talking about figuring out, you know, various things from help with childcare and figuring that out to buying things like in, you know, the, the strollers and oh God, all these yeah. crazy things that are like way too expensive. And I am new to mm-hmm. all of it. So I was he he and I were talking about it and we realized, OK, there's this resource called Nextdoor. Yeah. And so I joined. But one of the one of the things um, to your point about the process of becoming a member of Nextdoor and that it's 
it takes more time than other what you would call traditional social yeah. networks. And this conversation to me around social networks is a very interesting one right now as people feel like less trust mm-hmm. in the so. interactions that they're having. There's, you know, there are the questions about privacy on the platforms themselves, but there are also the interactions that so many people don't feel good about on these platforms. Sure. And the question it leads me to is just sort of this future that we're moving into where do you think that the social networks of the future will be more smaller specifically aligned around particular mission social networks as opposed to just the broad catch-all Facebook and Twitters of the world? Yeah. I, and look, I think that there is – you have different needs for different parts of your life. And Nextdoor is very different from those platforms because, remember, people come to Nextdoor because actually they don't know the people in your neighborhood, right? I – I'm a working mom, so my ability to know my neighbors is almost Zippo. So Nextdoor actually was a great unfold for that. I'm like, oh, that's where XYZ lives. So unlike, say, Facebook, where I go to find my friends, now they might be friends I've lost touch with, but they're still people I originally had relationships with. So it's almost the polar opposite of each other. Um, And then the next thing that you do on Nextdoor is it's the power of local, the power of proximity to bring people together to find some commonality, which then I think creates a really beautiful platform for exploring differences versus on a Facebook or a Twitter, I can defollow people, I can unfriend you versus next door I can't because you, unless I get you to move out of the neighborhood, you're pretty much there with me. And I think that is very different because the, the Facebook, Twitter thing can cause a lot of echo chamber. So you're only hearing from people like you that you want to hear from. Versus what I see in Nextdoor, and there's actually a beautiful piece by David Brooks about this, where he talks about, you know, the first centric of our lives is our family. So you sit around Thanksgiving table, you have a chance to talk and debate. And I don't always agree with, say, my father-in-law. We love each other dearly, but we can have some heated debates. Um, But the next layer for most people was their community, their rotary club, their church, you know, whatever – local community they belong to, and that has largely disappeared as globalization has kind of hit the world. The The next rings are much more, you have your professional ring, maybe your state, your nation, your world, right? Right. When you think about global warming, it's the citizen of the world. But because that ring too is missing, people don't have a place to have constructive, healthy debate. And I think this is a big part of why we see such toxicity out there. And so goes back to why I feel like Nextdoor has this just moment in time right now to grab people and figure out how to fill that kind of ring two with a place where I'm not going to agree with you. We might have very different political beliefs, but the fact we stand on the side of a soccer pitch every day and watch our kids play soccer means that we have to somewhat come together and maybe that allows us, me to understand why you feel one way about an issue and I feel a completely different way. So I I think that people will gravitate towards different things. You know, when I communicate, I use email, I use text, I use Slack. Um, You know, and it wasn't that once I got text, I stopped using email. It's just I slightly changed when I needed to use those things. And I think Nextdoor will have its place. Local community is a very big deal for most people in terms of how they spend their time. But I don't think it'll be the only thing. In the same way, I do think that the world needs, you know, some other pieces that aren't just Facebook and Twitter and so on, I think we can add to the the whole texture of how people engage with social media. And as 
social networks like Facebook and Twitter are grappling with community standards and what's acceptable and getting a lot of blowback from users of the public at large about what they allow on their platform. How is Nextdoor thinking through that question? Sure. So it actually starts at the atomic level of, first of all, the fact that we know we've made you verify yourself and identify as you. So you have to be Rebecca Jarvis at, you know, and it'll show your address, not the number, but mm-hmm. the street you live on. So there's something about just once people are verified, they're a little bit more inclined to be a better self, maybe not their best self, but it's harder, you know, to You're have You're not a, totally anonymous. Exactly. And then I think the second thing is the communities themselves grow organically, right? They start with a lead who puts a flag down, who actually creates the boundary of the neighborhood. So these are not zip codes. These are actually formed by a lead from the get-go. And then those leads also take up the mantle of moderating the platform. Anyone can post that something has violated a terms of service, and we try to be very clear on what that code of conduct is. But then the lead gets to have some input on, is that truly a violation or not? So I'm a lead of our neighborhood. The thing I see come up most often around violation is commerce happening on the platform. So some people want to know that, um, you know, a student's just back for the holidays and she has hours where she could do childcare or she could do tutoring. And other people are like, that's a violation of the terms of service. <laughs> and frankly, I fall in the former camp where I actually think that's great, relevant content for my community. And I think over time we need to find that right balance because this will be a big way that this platform, I think, gets even more um, utility into the community is how do we bring together those local businesses with the members. I feel like we could go really, really <laughs> deep on next door and what's happening there. But I want to come back for a minute to your career, because when I look at everything that you've done, Oxford, Stanford, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, Square, and now Nextdoor, these are all pedigreed names. These are all the names when if somebody were looking at the very beginning of their career and said, I want to be affiliated with the best in class, you know, the top places, they would very likely be inclined to say some of those names. Along the way, was that part of your thinking? And where along the way was there an, oh, my God moment? What am I doing? <laughs> so definitely not, because I wouldn't even have known those names when I was growing up. So, Which is really interesting. First of all, like, don't get I think part of it is maybe I'm not so blown away by just brands for the sake of brands. I just want to work with great people. And if that's your litmus test, it does tend to put you in great company Mm -hmm. um, and companies. But if you lead with people first, which is a huge leadership motto of mine, I think it just gets you in the right place and you can do great work. Um, You know, the oh, my God moment. I I don't know if I've had oh, my God moments. I definitely felt that I should have moved faster when I made that shift from Goldman to Salesforce. I mean, I don't regret, but mm-hmm. I was definitely tired the last couple of years as, uh, that I was at Goldman, and I was definitely ready for a change. And I think I didn't take the risk for a lot of reasons. Like, people told me to be patient, which, like, don't be patient, be impatient. And, you know, frankly, I was a young mom at the time, right? I had young kids, and I was A, exhausted <laughs> most of the time. But I also felt like, okay, I I don't have time to go do all this other stuff. Like, oh, my God, how will I balance it all? And I think now I look back and realize um, that there is no working harder because I just work. I I am when I'm in, I'm all in. It's Mm -hmm. kind of what I said. I'm a believer. And so being afraid of like working harder is just not a thing because there is no more. So 
the the kind of blocks that you put in front of yourself are often just completely made up in your own head. And really dissecting those and breaking through them right, has been the moments when then my career has actually really accelerated. Mm. So if you were advising uh, a young mother, as I am about to be, <laughs> I'm not so young, but I will be a mother for the first time. You're both. Um, and I, well, I've talked to a lot of friends about this question because a lot of people will say uh, things like, your career and your life has seasons and, you know, you spend your whole early stages of your career, perhaps really focusing and doubling down on the career. And then you're about to have children for the first time and you don't want to take your eye off of that in some ways. Yeah. Um, so I am, don't completely buy into the you can only do. Well, I clearly don't buy into the you can only do one thing at once. Right. It's clearly not a, not my my M.O. in life. You know, there's clearly a balance. I think having North Stars and knowing what's really important to you and and having it ordered. So family is definitely first for me, right? From the community I grew up in with my parents who really nurtured that community all the way through to today, that if I ever have to make a trade-off, family will always come first. So you just need to know that. But then I think you need to choose. Like, I don't think you can have everything. Like, I don't have the greatest social life because how would I fit in family um, work and then I actually love to stay fit. It's kind of the thing that keeps me sane. And so, therefore, my husband and I are kind of homebodies. We're totally we don't need to go out every Saturday night, right? So there's but you like that. Yeah, it sounds like there's there's trade offs. I mean, are there Saturday nights where you wish you were going out with people? There there definitely are, and I think there's friends that I probably haven't invested as much in because there's just not enough hours in the day. But I I would like figure out for you what are the things that give you maximum energy. Um, a lot of people ask the, and you may be getting there, but the, you know, what advice would you give your younger self? I just did an exercise um, that said, it was actually from a Borges short story where he sat in a bench and his 80-year-old self sat down talking to his younger self. And the question was, you know, now in my 40s, what do I, what do I think my 80-year-old self will say to me? And it kind of happened right as this whole next door thing was happening. And I kind of realized my 80-year-old self, I hope that she would say, you know, you went for it. You really did it. Like, you tried to lead. And again, it's kind of a moment of like, okay, that's that's where the truth lies in, in what I want to be in life. And it's okay if that 80-year-old self then says, and you fell flat in your face. <laughs> it was a total disaster because you at least tried, right? Life's short. And so, you know, for you as a, as a new mom, I would just, I mean... Take in the input. It's all input. Yes. But only you can kind of decide your path. And and just being clear, right? I There's so many wonderful moments with your kids that, you know, they're, they're, it flies by. So make sure you prioritize those moments, like the winter sing or whatever. Um, because even though they sound awful, they look terribly cute when they're all singing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shrink Sarah. I really appreciate that. Oh, so you're talking about the inputs. Advice. You get it the whole way. What's the worst advice you've received? Yeah, definitely this be patient. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it was happening to me because I was a woman. It was co- often coming from other women, too. But I think it was this whole thing of don't worry. In the end, like great work will show or, you know, it's better. You know, don't ask. It puts people off because, you know, they'll eventually notice. You know, hell mm-hmm. no. Go ask. Like, I, 
I notice it a lot as I manage men and women. Men like have an ask almost in every meeting you have of them. You're always very clear that they're looking to progress or do the next thing or get the next project or get the the compensation raise. And women are very kind of get very shy and quiet about it. And then often in their moments of stress, like when they do share it, it it becomes very emotional for them, which you should never be embarrassed by. By the way, I've like cried in so many meetings. You want to know? Um, and so asking and being impatient, I think, is completely where you want to be. So this whole patience thing, I don't buy into it at all. Is there ever a time where being patient counts? I think when you're building a business, being patient about how you build because you want to have a solid foundation I think that's a good place to be patient and to really iterate over and over again to get the great customer experience and then putting the foot on the gas. Well, one of the reasons I asked that is because I have witnessed from looking at the trajectory of others, and and I, I guess myself, as just a quick aside, there's probably points in my career where I've been maybe too patient or I've I've allowed myself to sort of hear that advice and do it. But I also do, just as a as somebody who's who's watched other people go through it, think that especially early in your career, when you're initially trying to prove yourself as a hard worker and somebody who will rise to the challenge and roll your sleeves up, that in those early stages, if you're not sort of willing to do the thing that you were hired to do, in addition to taking on new responsibility mm-hmm. – that can be a real detriment to a career um, because when you get hired to do something, an employer needs you to do that thing. And it's great if you want to take on additional stuff. But if your impatience means that you're just going to focus on sort of the the, the dessert part of that meal and you don't want to work on the, the vegetables, yeah. you're not going to be as, in my opinion, as attractive of an employee. Yeah. Uh, so I think that in that, what I see with a lot of um, folks who may be in their first or second job is their impatience is, okay, well, I need to go move to a new employer to do this next new thing. Or if I do this, I'll get like another, it goes back to titles, I'll get a better title. And you end up building a career that's very thin and narrow. And in the end, you're standing on this, you know, like huge long pole, but it's super unstable. And it's almost like that product build, same context, right? In the end, it kind of falls over and then you've got no base to fall back on. What I kind of advise at that stage is be impatient about finding other things around you, to your point. Like, do the work you're hired for, but look for other projects. Look for other ways. Like, it's rare that you're sitting in a company where you couldn't go, say, work in another country or work in a different part of the company. Be creative, right? I came out of a world of finance. Finance people are often like, I don't want to be creative. That sounds like fraud. I'm like, yeah, don't do fraud. <laughs> but, hey, finance people should be thinking – everyone should be thinking in a product way, right? At, at Square – we, the it was actually the the back end operations finance team that came up with products like Square Capital or even things like Instant Deposit. So they were always thinking about how to be innovative. So innovative is not something just engineers and product managers do. And so that's the way to be impatient is how do you make more of the situation and the context that you're in? Because then you're building a firm foundation and you're learning lots of different skills. Like a career that's just straight up is really unstable. A career that zigzags back and forth is great. And don't conflate either switching to new employers, which if I get a resume where someone jumps every 18 months, super off-putting. I'm like, no staying power, no loyalty, right? And also, if I get a resume where titles kept growing, I'm like, 
big signal about what they care about, and it's just not going to jibe with a person that just rolls up their sleeve and gets the job done. Sarah Fryer, this was a great, really, really interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us on No Limits. Thank you. It's awesome. All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our incredible listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Jules Miller. She's the CEO and founder of The New Co. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, everyone. My name is Jules. I am founder and CEO of The New Co., a supplement brand based out of NYC. The best bit of advice I wish I had earlier on in my career is just not to limit yourself. So in the very beginning, I try to rely on advisors and mentors to help me figure out the harder questions in business that I felt slightly less comfortable with. And it wasn't until I immersed myself and really realized that nobody understood the business as well as I did, that I realized that I could actually excel at the things that I found slightly harder, um, fundraising being one of them. And we've raised three rounds of funding in the last two years, which I wouldn't have been able to do had I not really pushed myself to do it. Congratulations, Jules. Wishing you and the new co continued success. Remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Jules and how she created the company. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, or if you have career questions, you can send them to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Finally, want to give a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.